And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning them, questioning, questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, uh, we look to you and ask you to help us understand this word that you have given us through Mark and through the Holy Spirit. Help us to see what we need to see, not just what we want to see. Satisfy our hearts with Jesus this morning as he is revealed to us in this text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think most of you would agree uh, that life is often difficult. Uh, we often face a variety of hardships. Um, fathers often experience hardships in the workplace as they struggle to provide for their families, and then they come home and they experience struggles at home as they try to raise children who don't often want to be raised. Uh, but uh, there's, your, there's your Father's Day bit right there for you. Um, <clears throat> felt needs often sort of rule within our hearts, within our perception of things, but uh, this kind of draws us to our biggest, most important needs. As, as we're introduced to, this time, not a leper, but a man who was paralyzed, uh, let's spend just a few moments thinking about what life would be like for him before we get to what his real need was. Life was incredibly hard for this man. Being paralyzed, he could not hold down a job. And so that means he made his living off of begging, which means he has to be in a visible place where people will go by and hopefully show generosity, kindness, and mercy towards him. So he's, he's at the mercy of others, but in order to get there, he needs the mercy of yet other people to bring him there. He's not a man who can get there 
on his own. Perhaps he may have had some rudimentary crutches, we don't really know, uh, but they didn't have wheelchairs, so he couldn't just plop himself in his wheelchair and wheel him down to the street, himself to the street corner and hold out a cup to get things. He needed someone to do almost everything for him. He was a man who was incredibly dependent, most likely perpetually discouraged with his lot in life. If you were to ask him what was the one thing he needed, I'm sure he would say, legs that work. Now, as the story unfolds, we're going to see that Mark is going to provide us with uh, a sort of a contrast, if we have eyes to see, between faith and unbelief. And so the first question that I have for us as we look at this text is what does faith look like in this particular instance that Mark records. Jesus needs a break from the ministry he's been undertaking. Uh, He's been in the desolate places, uh, remember, because it got so busy and crazy that he couldn't enter the towns, and so he's been out on the countryside doing uh, public ministry. And well, uh, Jesus kind of sneaks his way into Capernaum, which is where his home was, which was probably, most likely, the same home as Andrew and Simon. To get a little R&R, I imagine, but word spread quickly, and so we see that many were gathered together. And in case that wasn't enough, Mark lets us know that there's no more room. And as if that's not enough, Mark says, even at the door. And so uh, this house, which is very different from your house and my house, um, would be filled with people. Uh, pressing even to the door. So the courtyard on the inside has been filled, and perhaps they've made their way into a lot of the common rooms uh, that were found in this house. Uh, They're pressing in upon Jesus. And what's amazing to Jesus is that He's not saying, this is my day off. Leave me alone. But He preaches the Word to them. He recognizes that it's still time for ministry, that his time for earthly ministry is short, and he's going to maximize every opportunity that he has. And so while I would be tempted to cast these people out of the house, Jesus is not tempted to cast these people out of the house, even though he's overrun by them. He didn't hide, but he preached the word. And it's in this kind, it's in this particular setting uh, that four men arrive that who are carrying a paralytic on his litter or his mattress, and they're unable to get through the crowd. They want to get through the door. They want to get inside to where Jesus is in the one of the inner chambers, speaking to people, but they can't reach him because there's too many people in the way. Some of us would give up. Well, perhaps there'll be another opportunity for us to bring our friend before Jesus. But they didn't give up. Oftentimes you could access the roof through a ladder or a staircase that was on the side of the house. And so they were able to maneuver this man in his litter up to the roof. The roof had beams and then they would pack the dirt on top of the beams. And so they dig through the dirt just where Jesus is, and now, I mean, this is a weird scene. The ceiling begins to fall down around Jesus, and he's not all that put off by it. 
I get annoyed when my when my uh, children um, put dents in the wall. <laughs> and here the roof is collapsing and Jesus does not seem to be bothered by it at all. These men are making use of every possible means in order to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. As I sat in my office and I thought about what that would be like, I was reminded, uh, you know, I came to my memory, uh, the end of the movie Crocodile Dundee. Some of you might remember that. Crocodile Dundee is uh, going to return to Australia, but he has a problem, and his problem is that he loves the reporter that he's been working with. And... Uh, she has taken off. And so he goes to the subway, and this being New York, the subway station is packed, and he can't get to her and tell her that he loves her. And so, but he's not put off, oh, well, I guess I'll just go back to Australia. He persists in this, and he kind of passes word down. He yells to one guy who yells to another guy who yells to the other guy, to the woman in the hat. And this conversation goes back and forth between these men. <laughs> Between, or rather, you know, through these men to this man and this woman as he now declares his love for her to everybody in the subway and she declares his love for him to everybody in the subway. But now he needs to get from point A to point B and there's this scene that's really hard to see, but he's walking on people. They're holding up their hands and he, and holding him up as he traverses the distance between himself and the woman that he loves. He could not be stopped. And that's what these guys are like. They love their friend and they want to bring him to Jesus and there's nothing that's going to stop them. They're, uh, we see, Mark kind of explains this in a way that we initially can overlook, but I think it's the whole point of this portion of this text. When Jesus saw their faith. Faith is something invisible. But Jesus sees their faith. Their actions made their faith visible. And that's an important thing for us to recognize. That without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. These men had faith because they are seeking Jesus and they believe something good is going to happen when they get to Jesus. And that is the healing of their friend. Their persistence, their perseverance, their refusal to give up and to go home was driven by faith. They believed these accounts of Jesus, that He had healed people, including the leper, that He had cast out demons and unclean spirits, and they believed that this man could help that man. And since that man couldn't get to Jesus himself, they were going to carry him to Jesus. And so their faith is made visible 
by their actions. We see this all over the place in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, so-and-so did such-and-such. Whether it's Abel offering the better sacrifice, Abraham at 70 years of age, leaving his home and his family, going to a place he didn't know where just yet. Whether it's Moses leaving the, the royal palace and going to the wilderness and then leaving the wilderness to come back to the palace to set people free. All of these things, by faith, so-and-so did such-and-such. Their faith was revealed by their obedience and by their risk. And almost every one of those situations, you will, if you think about it, risk was involved. Faith embraced the risk of obedience. We see something similar in James chapter 2 when James is talking about the kind of faith that justifies a sinner. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Can't be done, I'll add parenthetically. But he says, I will show you my faith by my works. And so what James is getting at is that the, the, the character and the nature of justifying or saving faith is one that will inevitably produce works. It becomes visible. It's not a cheap, shallow faith that is merely intellectual. Saving faith produces allegiance, commitment, a willingness to take risk, it eventually becomes visible. I'm reminded of the missionary, William Carey, a good Calvinist, who decided that uh, the heathen in other lands needed to be reached. And so instead of thinking that God will send someone else, that God was calling him to be part of that process, to reach those people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And so William Carey began to form a missionary society, and he was uh, rebuked by a group that would be considered hyper-Calvinist. If God wants to reach the heathen, he can do it without you, William, and by implication, without us. They sat and did nothing. William Carey's, one of his most famous statements is, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. That's a man of faith. And so this is a man of faith who left England to go to a foreign land when it was not something that was ordinarily done at that point in time. Okay? Foreign, foreign missions was not huge unless it was tied with the colonialism of uh, Spain. But William Carey did go, and others joined him. His faith was made visible in that particular way. How was your faith made visible? It doesn't have to be foreign missions. But there, is, there should be a way that someone could say, this person is a Christian. 
that there's, there's something that they're doing that they didn't used to do simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. Or conversely, there's something that they used to do that they no longer do simply because they believe in Jesus Christ. These men brought their friend to Jesus because they trusted something about Jesus. And so faith in Christ results in visible action. And in this case, it's four friends fighting the odds to bring their friend to meet Jesus. What's the flip side of that coin? What does unbelief do? We get a picture of that in verses 6 through 8. It's prompted by the statement that Jesus makes, your sins are forgiven, and we'll touch on that later on. Uh, But this phrase sets up the revelation, the unveiling of what unbelief looks like. And within that house of, of Simon and Andrews, there were some scribes. Uh, these were the professional interpreters of the law of, of that day. Okay, so they're the they're the guys like me. So the, there's guys like me there. They're in this this home that is jam packed with people, and Mark says they're sitting there. Kind of interesting. Everyone else is probably standing and crammed, and these guys are sitting there. doing nothing. They, they did nothing to make sure that the paralytic got in there to see Jesus, and now that he's in there, they're still doing nothing. Well, they're doing something. Because Mark tells us that they're questioning in their hearts. The, the Greek word is the one we would have, you know, it transliterates essentially into dialogue. They're having a dialogue within their hearts. Okay, uh, They're turning this thing over in their minds when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. They're looking at it. They're analyzing it from their perspective and their, their presuppositions. Their activity is internal. There's an internal dialogue that is going on. They're evaluating. They're judging. They're stewing. What strikes me is that the guilty, crippled guy is not the one who's arguing with Jesus. He didn't say, Jesus, I'm not here because I'm guilty. I'm here because my legs don't work. Can we fix this problem? There's no hint of him arguing with Jesus about this statement. But we have the healthy, supposedly righteous scribes arguing with Jesus, not out loud, in their hearts, where they think he can't see. Unbelief argues with Jesus. He can't do this. He can't do that. In Romans 14, in this discussion of disputable items, Paul notes uh, that whoever has doubts is condemned. And that has doubts about a particular rightfulness of action. That's not about um, struggling with 
you know, the Trinity. Okay. Um, you know, accepting it but going, I don't understand it. Those kinds of doubts. The desire to understand but not being able to fully understand. If he eats, okay, he's condemned if he eats because his eating is not of faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so their questioning was the questioning not of seeking to understand, but their questioning was from a position of unbelief and therefore is sinful. And we see the conclusion they reach. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They begin to accuse and condemn Jesus of sin within their hearts. They've seen what He has done, the people He has healed, the people He has delivered from unclean spirits, but they still continue to measure Him by the normal standards of a man. And in their unbelief, they who should be condemned condemn Him. They declare that He is the sinner. They're right in a sense. Only God can forgive. We see this repeatedly throughout Scripture. For instance, Psalm 130, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And then there's a, the, the implication there is that there's no one else that we're supposed to fear, and therefore there's no one else who forgives sin. It is God who forgives sin. And so they're right on, on that part of this, but they're not properly evaluating who Jesus is. They're not taking into account the prophetic writings about Jesus in places like Isaiah 53. They're not seeing Daniel 7, that there is a Son of Man who is given the kingdom and the authority, and He has the power to judge and the power to forgive. They're not seeing that. They're seeing an ordinary guy. Because their eyes are blinded by unbelief. Unbelief regarding this plan of salvation means they didn't believe Jesus could actually do this. And we see that unbelief is frequently a downward spiral. You begin with questioning God's Word, and then you begin to condemn others falsely. We see something similar to this in the silly movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. A woman is brought to them in disguise, is declared that she is a witch because the, the crowd wants to uh, burn her. Apparently it was a boring day. And uh, Sir Bedivere, ah, I can't pronounce his name correctly, Bedivere is uh, engaging this crowd. And his basic presupposition is uh, we burn witches and they actually burn because they're made of wood. Witches are made of wood. And he wonders, he's trying to prompt the crowd. Okay, so his first presupposition is completely wrong. 
He tries to prompt the crowd as to what else burns, and they really don't have an answer, and so there is King Arthur in the background, and he says, a duck. Yes. And so Bedivere, again, tries to encourage them to think from his perspective. Uh, he says, logically, and there you see the... Uh, one of the peasants struggling to answer this, and he says, if she weighs as much as a duck, she's made of wood, and she's a witch. And now the crowd pauses and goes, burn her. Their unbelief, their faulty premises, bring them to faulty conclusions, which result in a false condemnation of a woman as she's placed upon these gigantic scales and found to weigh, amazingly, as much as a duck. (laughs) I would question the accuracy and veracity of those scales if I were her. That's what they're doing. It's not Sir Bedivere's gigantic scales. It's the scales within their own hearts, but they're just as faulty as his. And they're coming to the wrong conclusion and condemning the wrong person. And what we should see here is is that in addition to the demonic oppression, we now, or demonic opposition, I should say, we, we also see that human opposition to Jesus is beginning. But there's a difference. With regard to the the demons, they know who he is, but they hate who he is. With the human opposition, uh, they don't clearly see who he is, and they hate who who they think he is. A sorcerer. A rebel. A disturber of the peace. Human opposition to Jesus is driven by unbelief in its varied forms. And so unbelief argues with Jesus and condemns him as though we're so much smarter and better and kinder and gooder and righteous than Jesus. Now we get to really what a lot of this is about the main problem. What is forgiveness and you know, why is it so important? We're back to that phrase that Jesus speaks, Son, your sins, that should not be sings, that should be sins. Um, my fingers mistyped. That sin also was forgiven. Um, <clears throat> But see how Mark is connecting these two things within the text. Jesus saw their faith. Okay, When he sees their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. We are to understand that there is a connection between faith and forgiveness. Now, their faith can include the paralytic, and I believe it includes the paralytic. So he's not say, his sins are not forgiven because those guys believed, but he also believed. 
He was not just saying, he wasn't going, don't bring me to Jesus, please. I don't want to be bothered today. But he too was saying, Jesus can heal me. Jesus can help me. I want to see Jesus. And so he shares in their faith and Jesus sees this faith and says, son, this word of kindness to him, this word of tenderness to him, a word of belonging to him, your sins are forgiven. He's addressing the fundamental problem that this man has. A problem that is far more significant than the fact that he cannot walk. There is a want of conformity to God's law in this man. Meaning he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. There's a transgression of the law of God that this man has committed. And numerous ones because it sins. Okay? There's times he breaks the law of God by doing what he's told not to do. So children, you are disobeying your parents, whether it's failing to do what they tell you to do, or whether you do what they tell you not to do. And the rest of us disobey God the same way. Disobeying God in, in these ways brings with it a penalty. There is a debt that's owed. And that debt has been established by God. It's not something that Moses thought up as he sat on the mountaintop for 40 days with his little notepad. What can we decide is the penalty for theft? We see it from the garden all the way back. The day that you sin is the day that you die. Paul expresses it this way in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. That was what has been established by God for rebels. And that changes things. Because not only is this a man whose legs won't work, this is a man on a death sentence. He's on death row. Even though he doesn't recognize it. And something has to be done. Because you don't want him simply to be able to walk if he remains on death row. That's not really a win. Forgiveness is the releasing of this debt and the accepting of the loss. Uh, That's something that um, a lot of politicians don't get sometimes. There's been a lot of talk about about, um, forgiving debt lately. Someone has to bear the loss of that debt. Okay? If, for instance, you borrowed $500 from me, (laughs) hard time getting that out of me. Um, (laughs) But let's imagine you did and you couldn't pay it back and I forgive your debt. What I'm saying is, is I accept the loss of the $500. I don't know if I can write that off of my taxes. I probably can't. Uh, it's not like uh, you know a business loss, but nonetheless, accepting the loss. And my mind always goes back to the pivotal scene in Les Miserables. 
I particularly like the Liam Neeson version, even though the acting is not always great. And uh, he plays Jean Valjean, who, of course, uh, was a man who stole bread in order to feed uh, his sister's family because they were starving. And uh, for that horrendous crime, he got 19 years in the French galley. So he's, he's just been released, uh, but he has to bear the mark of the prisoner, and so no one wants anything to do with him. He is uh, ostracized socially. He thinks he's going to sleep on a bench uh, over the night, but then it starts to rain, and he, he sees a light, and he goes, and it turns out to be the bishop's house. And the bishop feeds him and offers him a place to, to sleep out, inside and out of the rain. And, uh, but Jean Valjean is thinking about his future, and he becomes filled with fear. I can't live here with the bishop for the rest of my life. At some point, I need to get out and do something. And so how am I going to get money to do this? And, well, you know, I ate with, with that silverware. That can set me up. And so he begins to, the process of stealing the silverware in the dark of the night, the bishop is, uh, hears a noise, says, who is that? Comes out, Jean Valjean has no choice from his perspective, but to strike the bishop and knock him unconscious and steal the silverware. The next morning, the scene is the garden where the bishop and his, um, the lady who keeps the house uh, are talking about this, and she's very upset with him. What are they going to eat on? And he is frustrated and says, well, wooden spoons will do. And into the courtyard, suddenly you see the soldiers come in, dragging in Jean Valjean along with uh, the, the pack that has all the silverware in it. The housekeeper is elated. But the bishop does the unexpected. The soldier says to him, to the bishop, about the silverware. He claims that you gave it to him, and you hear this audible chuckle, like, what kind of stupid, fanciful tale is this? And it was a stupid, fanciful tale. But the bishop says, yes, I did. But you didn't take the candlesticks. That was very foolish of you, Jean Valjean. You mustn't forget. And he, he, he finds a way for the housekeeper to bring the soldiers and get some tea because they must obviously be thirsty at this point so he can speak honestly with Jean Valjean. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer believe, belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred, and now I give you back to God. There's a picture of the gospel that is there. Because the bishop does not demand the debt be paid. He forgives the debt. In other words, Jean Valjean is able to keep the silverware. But he gives him even more in the form of the candlesticks so that Jean Valjean can have a life Now, it's a picture of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. 
Because the gospel is that we were not uh, ransomed from our futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers through perishable things such as silver or gold, but we have been purchased and ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, as, as Peter says in the first chapter of his first letter. Jesus forgives this man and his debt on the basis of the fact that he is going to go to the cross and shed his blood to pay the debt. God does not just wave a magic wand and everyone's forgiven. It comes through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And only through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And so if someone asks you, how can I be forgiven? you got to say, it's only because of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. He bore the sins of people on the cross so that He can remove the debt you owe God. Death. He paid it in full. Jesus then challenges the scribes. Which is easier? To say he's forgiven or to say get up and walk? Now, this is kind of a tricky question when you think about it. On the one hand, forgiving, saying your sins are forgiven is easier than to declare a healing precisely because no one can see whether or not the sins have been forgiven. But they can see whether the man has been healed. And so on the first look, it looks sort of like it's harder to say, get up and walk. But again, I go back to how is it that one is forgiven, and we see that it is in fact much harder because it requires life. His life. In the Old Testament, we often see that healing and forgiveness were connected. For instance, Psalm 41. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And so he sort of seems to be indicating there in Psalm 41 that his sin has brought on some sort of physical ailment. We see something similar in uh, Psalm 51 as well. His bones were breaking. Isaiah 19, the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and and they will return to the Lord and He will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. He will forgive them and He will heal them. Is what Isaiah says. And so there's a tie that seems to be at work, a connection that seems to be at work in in this particular instance, just as in those particular instances. But he says, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There's a couple things that are here. One is, Jesus uses the title Son of Man from Daniel. Most of the Son of Man statements are much later in the Gospel. It's almost like that's one of the things he doesn't want people to know, but this is one of the early instances of it where he reveals 
the Messiah as the Son of Man, and both of whom are divine people. And because He is divine, because the books have been given to Him and all authority has been given to Him, He has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so, Jesus is going to prove that He is, in fact, the divine Son of Man. That He has a right or the authority to forgive sins. His words are not simply a declarative action like the priests of the Old Testament and the priests of today do, or as I did earlier in our worship service from the old liturgy of Strasbourg. I think it was Strasbourg. It was Cramner. I can't remember at this moment. But nonetheless, I declared God's forgiveness upon all those who truly repented. That's not what Jesus is doing. It's not simply a declarative act. He is, in fact, pardoning the sins in a way that I cannot. Because they're sins against God, not simply sins against me. You can forgive when people sin against you, but you cannot be in the place of God in forgiving their sins against God. That's the point. Jesus is also not like Caesar. Do you think Caesar forgives people? Paul reminded them, authorities don't have the sword for nothing. They punish criminals. They punish sinners. They they have no concept of real mercy. But this king, Jesus, has a concept of mercy and an exit. And so, he says, so that you might know I have this authority. And he speaks to the man, rise, get your bed, and go home. And he does. The healing of the paralytic makes his forgiveness from Jesus visible to everyone else. And so just as the faith of the friends was made visible by their actions, so the forgiveness of the paralytic, in this case, is made visible in his ability to act. And in his newfound ability to stand up, carry his bed home. Jesus forgives sin. And Jesus forgives those who have faith in Him. That's the condition. Forgiveness is received through faith. So if we were to kind of try and wrap this thing up, I I suppose we would say that Jesus forgives, forgives those who trust and inevitably condemns those who condemn Him through unbelief. Our most pressing needs are necessarily our most important needs to us. The paralytic's whole life was shaped by the fact that his legs didn't work. 
it seemed to him to be the most pressing and important thing in the whole universe. But Jesus said to him, your sins are forgiven. Jesus cuts to the heart of things. As the Son of Man, Jesus has the authority to forgive those sins. And apart from this, His working limbs don't matter all that much. To be forgiven and adopted by a Father in Heaven affects forever. Not just the next few weeks or years of one's life. So the question is, have you come to that Jesus by faith? Have you come to the Jesus who's revealed as the Son of Man with the authority to forgive sins? Have you come to that Jesus by faith? And if you have, so, okay, those of you who already have, which is, I think, most of you in this room, okay, you're not off the hook. If you have, are you like those friends who are seeking to bring others to that same Jesus by faith? Or are you content to be there just yourself? That's what Mark wants us to hear, I think. Let's listen. Father, a great word and also in some ways a hard word. Because the revelation of Jesus Christ as we see in this text calls forth from us faith. The response of faith. Not the response of unbelief which argues with Jesus. Yeah, but. Now, I understand that, but. Grant us great faith. Grant us a faith like William Carey's that expects great things from you. Gives you the freedom to say yes or no, but still wants great things from you. Father, grant us a faith that then also attempts great things for you and is not content to sit back and watch the world go by. This only happens as your Spirit works, and I ask that it would work. I'm expecting great things from you. In Christ's name, amen.